For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. Going to read the first 18 verses. This is a passage that the adult Bible study society that meets on every other Wednesday evening is discussing. And we just recently concluded the first chapter. Rich, rich word of God concerning the qualifications of Jesus as the Son of God in our flesh. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. We read that far in God's holy word. This evening we consider Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 6. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which hath sinned 
should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God, that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Whence knowest thou this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifice and other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's taken five Lord's Days, but the Heidelberg Catechism is finally explicitly mentioned. Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we confessed in the very first Lord's Day. Of course, the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ underlies and is the truth that was brought to us even with regard to our misery that we learned out of the law. And of course, these Lord's Days were preached to you inseparably, as always it must, with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this has been the first time since Lord's Day 1 that explicit reference is made to him. There is a reason for this, reason we should not overlook. Sometimes the charge is made that a Christless sermon is delivered, and certainly that charge can be valid. On the other hand, one should be careful with the charge because our own catechism itself has deliberately excluded mention of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those were not Christless Lord's Days, were they? The reason for this is in the interests of the gospel and to present to us a very important aspect of the gospel which we can tend to overlook. The gospel, of course, is about our deliverance. It's about our mediator, Jesus Christ. That's really what the gospel is. We learned that in the last question and answer. Where do we learn this? From the Holy Gospel. And that gospel is essentially that which is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So the gospel has as its sole content Jesus Christ, and that is what is preached. However... It is impossible 
to know about the deliverer and the need for deliverance without understanding and knowing the truth of our misery. So the Catechism is teaching us about our misery in such a way as to impress upon us what we already confessed in Lord's Day 1. What was that? Well, we confessed who was our only comfort in life and death. The question was asked, what is it? And the answer was a who. Or more precisely, that I belong to a who. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Catechism wants to impress upon us that word only. It is necessary, absolutely necessary. It is a part of the Gospel that we confess that there is only one comfort in life and death. The Gospel is, there is a way of escape from the wrath and just judgment of God. There is a way to reconciliation with God. There is a way of perfect satisfaction of God's justice against all of our sins, but there is only one way, not even two, only one. And Jesus is the one. The purpose of the Catechism is to impress upon us the truth that we also confess that this one way this one way of escape, this one way back to God's favor, this one way of deliverance is a way of grace. It's not enough that we simply confess there's only one way. And that way is our Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of the Gospel, the truth of our deliverance, and that which must live in our soul is that this is the way of grace. And there too, there is no other way. There's no way of escape and deliverance in the way of man, in the way of himself, to be found in himself, in his own mind, in his own will, in his own power, in his own strength. And certainly no way in heaven or earth except our Lord Jesus Christ. Those especially two things we must believe. For they are heart and center of the Holy Gospel. Consider with me this morning our only mediator and deliverer. His unique qualifications the deliverance he mediates, and his personal revelation. The previous Lord's Day and the last question and answer mentioned the two ideas that are found in the title of the sermon. When it asks, what sort, what kind 
what sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? And an answer is given. For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also very God. Not only did the Catechism there at the end of Lord's Day 5 introduce to us that what everything is all about, that what everything the Catechism has taught us about our misery, about the totality of that misery, about all answering all of our questions, about ways of escape and closing the door to them, what it's all about is the need for a mediator and deliverer. And notice that, that what's introduced here is not simply a savior. That is true, of course. The name Jesus itself indicates he is the savior. But importantly introduces the notion of a mediator and deliverer. Then it sets forth the qualifications. And that it's speaking about qualifications is evident when the question was, what sort, what kind? That is, what kind of qualifications must this mediator have? Can anyone serve as mediator? Can everyone be deliverer? The qualifications are given and The Catechism isn't yet really done with that. Questions then are asked, why? Why? So let's keep that in mind as we look at these qualifications that along with these qualifications, the interest of the Heidelberg Catechism is not simply teaching them as such, not simply teaching that as such our mediator and deliverer must be God and man in one person and must be a perfectly righteous man, which are the basic qualifications, but why? And in so doing, the Catechism is basically teaching us also what's at stake when someone might, for example, reject one of those qualifications or look to a mediator or deliverer who does not possess those qualifications. In other words, someone other than our Lord Jesus Christ. What's at stake? And the answer is their very salvation. Salvation is at stake. You may foolishly imagine that someone else can deliver you. You may imagine that perhaps you yourself can mediate with God. Perhaps you yourself can stand in the presence of God and argue your case. And sadly, there are many such fools. Fools who understand, who know in a very real way that there is a God that God is a righteous God, that God is a holy God, who know even that they are sinners 
before this God, who may even confess that Jesus Christ is the mediator and deliverer, but everything else in their mind and their heart shows that they do not trust, do not truly believe in, are not subject to that mediator and deliverer, and rather seek their salvation, their deliverance everywhere else, and chiefly in themselves. Seek for their deliverance in doing enough themselves, doing less or more than others, pleading before God to receive them for all kinds of other reasons than that they are in Jesus Christ. The amazing thing about the catechism here is that it limits the mediator and deliverer to a single person. A single person. Now what's amazing about that is that locates this being a mediator and deliverer to one person in the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, something mysterious and amazing all by itself. Of course, the triune God Himself delivers, and He is the one who mediates. Just think about that. We'll go back to that in a minute. But that God Himself is our mediator, the triune God. But more specifically, and as part of the Gospel, God is pleased to identify that Deliverer, that Savior in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, no doubt, with more or less amazement, is the reality that of all the persons in the world who have ever lived, there is only one who meets the qualification. That all by itself ought to impress upon us the impossibility of salvation by our own ability, our own power, our own wisdom, our own righteousness. Never mind that in all of the world, among all the creatures, among all the material things, there is not enough gold and silver in the universe that can deliver or mediate for us. There's no institution. There's no king. There's no ruler. There's no mother or father, son or daughter. There's no politician, no king, no queen, no minister, no elder that can mediate for you. And there's none that can deliver. No, not one. The answer is very clear. And it's the point of all this. Who is He? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind 
even before we get to the last question and answer, that this is what the entire Word of God is about. The entire Word of God that we read, that Word of God which is the Son of God, come in our flesh, it's all about identifying Him, making clear, making it so clear it's unmistakable, so clear that there's no excuse in rejecting Him, who and what He must be. There was no excuse, even though we may understand it, because the same nature is in our own heart, for the Jews, particularly the Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders, to reject Jesus of Nazareth as their mediator and deliverer, which is what they did. Because all of Scripture identified him, and identified him very clearly. In fact, if you want to impress more upon yourself that there's only one mediator and deliverer, and it must be our Lord Jesus Christ, and He must even be certain things for us, then look at that rejection of Him. When Jesus comes again, only this time, in all of His glory, how many will receive Him? The whole world, even when it's quaking and fearing before Him, will reject Him. And there will be little faith on the earth. What He must be is, first of all, a mediator. The qualifications have to do with His work, which is being a mediator. A mediator is someone who works toward reconciliation. Usually, in common terms, a mediator is one who reconciles two parties at odds in a relationship of some kind, a business relationship, an employee-employer relationship, or a marriage relationship. Now this all by itself is important. Interestingly, that this term is not a common one in Scripture, although the idea is, the idea is found throughout the Old Testament. It's found in the sacrifices. It's found in the pictures. But the word itself is only found in Galatians 3, 1 Timothy 2. In the book of Hebrews is where it occurs most frequently. Now why is that important? Because it emphasizes something the Catechism was teaching earlier and that we may not forget, which is regardless now of the content of the deliverance and what it has to do with, that what is done is not simply deliverance from something, a salvation from something, but it has to do with a relationship. It has to do with restoration of a relationship. Now you know, as well as I do, that it's a reference to the covenant relationship. 
And that that covenant relationship between God and man, the covenant relationship between Adam and God, was not a business relationship. Nor was it, strictly speaking, a servant-lord relationship. It was a relationship of friendship and fellowship. Adam and God walked together and talked together as friends. And Adam's sin destroyed that relationship. In other words, what the Catechism points out here is there's not simply a penalty, a penal issue that has to do with our sin. It's not simply a matter of paying something, a matter of redemption. It's not simply a matter that Adam sinned against God and that sin comes with a penalty and that that penalty must be paid. But that satisfaction of that has a goal or an end to it. Bring that up because so often in our own thinking, we think of our Lord Jesus Christ simply as Savior. And then we limit what that salvation is, sometimes just to redemption. But no, He is a complete Savior, as we're going to see. But if we don't see that all of that pertains to an end, then we've not seen the beauty and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that such is His work that He delivers in a way that restores a relationship. It has as its goal and as its end and as its purpose the restoration. Indeed, even a furthering, a bringing to a higher quality and plane a life of friendship and fellowship with God. It's all built into that word mediator. Interesting too that it's that work that the Old Testament types and shadows all associated, as does the book of Hebrews, especially with the priestly office of Christ. The priestly office of Christ. That's how the priests essentially functioned as mediators, as the work of the sacrifices. But we move on. As to the qualifications, the first is one we saw already last week, or we saw them both really, that he must be very man and perfectly righteous, but not only a man, not merely a man. He must also be more powerful than any and all creatures, and therefore he must also be God. So first of all, notice that there is no deliverance possible, no mediatorship possible, no mediating of that relationship, no restoration of it by one who is not. God. Contrary to the so-called gospel of the liberal Christian today, the gospel that is preached on many a pulpit, 
that there are many ways to God. In fact, we all actually serve the same God. Unless you think this is some far-out notion, you will find this in the Reform camp and in Presbyterian circles. That is not true. That is not true. There can be no deliverance through Allah, for example. There can be no mediatorship, no deliverance by one who is not God. And the importance of that is that that was one of the first battles, the first shot. First, the church fought the battle against Arius. Arius said that Jesus was simply similar to God. He had a similar nature. He was in God's likeness. And the church said, no, not good enough. We can't be saved by one who is simply similar to God, like God, really close to being God. Only God can save. And the Catechism really sets forth why, which really ought to impress upon us what we really deserve for our sin, which is only God can bear the wrath of God against sin. If God would destroy eternally everything that He has made, destroy it all into one big hulking inferno of fire and set it on fire for eternity, that burning wouldn't satisfy His justice for what we did to Him. Only God can satisfy His justice. That, by the way, is why, why others than Jesus Christ are presented as mediators or possibilities of salvation, even in the Reformed churches. It's because the justice and righteousness of God is no longer preached, no longer loved, no longer held in high esteem. That's a quality of God that the church would just as soon get rid of and get rid of exactly because it opens the way to other mediators. But we must maintain who God is, for it is that which makes clear if there is to be a way of escape, it must be through God Himself. God Himself must deliver us and save us. He must be God out of God. He must be the Word. The Word who is, who was, Endeavor shall be God. Does that live in your soul? That very truly, really, only God can save you, and only God can restore you to a relationship with Him, exactly because of what our sins deserve. Number two, he must also be man, very man, and a perfect righteous man. Now notice here the emphasis upon his person. He must be both in one person. Why must he in one person be also very 
God. That's important because there may not be two deliverers. It also emphasizes the impossibility because apart from the incarnation, the Son of God taking our flesh and uniting it to His person, there is no deliverer. Because God is God and man is man. God is the Creator. Man is the creature. God is over there, transcendent. Man, man in His perfection is just a speck of dust before God. Who, who can unite man and God in one person? Who can even conceive it? Come up with it? Think of it? Only God. The point is, furthermore, that He must be entirely man. Not just have the body of a man, or the mind of a man, or the soul of a man, but He must be man, body, and soul. He must be man in all of His life. Man at birth. Man at death. He must live a man's life. He must come from man. He may be He may be what all the heretics said He was. They in all one way or another denied that. What they said is there was a unity of the nature such that they combined and became a third thing. Jesus became a God-man so that He was no longer God, but no longer man either. He was a God-man. It's not true. Not true. Or He became God and man in such a way that the godly nature took on the human qualities or the human nature took on divine qualities. No. Because then man's no longer man and God's no longer God. There has to be a union in a wonderful, mysterious way that the church also had to fight about. A union that is mysterious. So mysterious that the church could only say what it's not. That there was a union of the two natures in the one person such that they weren't mingled. They weren't confused. Nor can they be divided or separated. And that forever. That's another amazing thing about this meeting and deliver. Such was it that God took on our flesh forever. Not like He did it for a temporary short period of time. That He only did this while He was on earth. Even now, our flesh is united in one person, the divine Son of God. And that's who He is forever and ever. That also belongs to those qualifications. God must do that. Such must be the love and the grace and the mercy of God that says, God says, God now, says, I will become a man forever and ever. You going to do that? We, we, we scarcely can give anything for somebody else who is our equal. Now, we need to look yet at the work of the mediator, which of course is mediation and deliverance. 
might even say he mediates a deliverance, which is how I put it. This work consists, first of all, in him coming to us, in his taking on the human nature. We must not overlook that in the passage. The Heidelberg Catechism points it out when it says, He is made unto us. Something must happen. Something must occur. This mediator and deliverer must, in a certain sense, be made. God must take our flesh in time. He must come from heaven to us. He must actually die on a cross. That's remarkable. Remarkable that God works this out in time. God couldn't just say, or didn't just say, well, I'll think about it, or I'll consider it done, as if I did it. No, God actually does it. That's love. Actually does it. So that we should also see. He must be provided. So unique is He. Proof also that there again is nothing of us in here. We don't reconcile ourselves to God, nor is God reconciled to us. In other words, there's nothing wrong in God. There's nothing God has to do on His part. But we're the problem. We're the problem. We read about that in Scripture too. That God who hath reconciled us to Himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. We were the ones that had to be reconciled to God. We're the ones who are the rebels. We're the ones who walks away. Now as to that work, it is summarized very wonderfully in the question and answer that identifies the mediator when it says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, about that. Very briefly, those four things are the four basic elements of that deliverance he mediates. The basis for the mediation and the basis for the deliverance is all found in the last one, which is redemption. Our deliverance must include redemption. Notice also it's not limited to redemption. You are greatly if you say our deliverance is only that we are redeemed. Christ is not simply made our Redeemer. But it begins with redemption. Redemption is the satisfaction. Not strictly speaking. The idea is He satisfies the justice of God and thereby redeems us. And redemption is that He buys us. He purchases us. We now belong to Him. There's the basis for the confession of Lord's Day 1. My only comfort in life and death is I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself why you belong, and the answer is not by natural birth. Not really even because you're 
begotten again of God as such. But it's because He first redeemed you. He satisfied the justice of God and in so paying that price, bought you. He owns you. That's redemption. And notice, He is the redemption. He has made unto us redemption. God must make redemption for us. And He is it. Very real way, it's not even that redemption is something other than Him. He is it. We belong to our Redeemer. The next three, wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, you may see as the restoration of the image of God that we lost when we fell in Adam. That's how you may see that. And very briefly, all three of these things belong to our deliverance, and all three are related and related this way. You may relate wisdom to the knowledge of the image of God. You do remember the image of God, right? A few Lord's Days ago, we talked about the image of God, that God created Adam in His own image. And the confessions, the Reformed confessions, unanimously agree that the image of God is true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. Wisdom is a reference to that knowledge. The fact that God must make Christ unto us wisdom makes clear that we lost that wisdom. That is, the understanding and the knowing in love of God. God must restore that must deliver us unto that. Christ is that wisdom. It's one of the reasons He's called the Word. Word relates to knowledge. Word relates to wisdom. One of the reasons He's called the Word has to do with the fact that He imparts and restores to us, even brings to a higher plane and quality our knowledge of God and our wisdom that flows out of that knowledge. Now if you ask how God does that, how does Jesus do that, the answer briefly is He unites us to Himself by faith. Having redeemed us, purchased us, He then unites us to Him. Proof of that is the very next Lord's Day we're going to examine faith. There you will learn that faith is knowledge. It is the knowledge of salvation and deliverance in Jesus Christ. Notice that in this deliverance, it's not that Christ is these things then, and then they're over here. But they become ours through union with Him. That He is these things, not simply for us, but He is these things in connection with us. That begins with faith. The next one, righteousness, relates to justification. Righteousness is a legal concept. Righteousness has to do with one's status or standing before God. Legally, does one measure up to the standard of God Himself? Is one in all of his being like God? Truly in the likeness of God. That's righteousness. And deliverance includes that one is righteous before God. 
And if you ask how the Deliverer is going to be that for us, the answer is He is that righteousness and He imputes it to us. He says, you are righteous as I am righteous because I give to you. I reckon to you. Given that way, I reckon, I impute to you this righteousness. It's yours. As if you fully satisfied all of God's righteousness. As if you fully satisfied for all your sins. It's yours. And then the sanctification relates to the holiness of the image of God. Sanctification and holiness always go together. And those aren't legal concepts, but they're ethical concepts. Holiness, sanctification is basically dedication to God in all of one's life. Noticed earlier, the question was asked, why must he and be one person also very God? And the answer is that he must do certain things and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. The righteousness we just talked about and the life is referring to sanctification. Sanctification changes our life. Change, sanctification is what takes us from being dead to alive, from filthy to clean, from disobedient to obedient. And if you ask how the Deliverer does that, and the answer is He actually imparts His Spirit. He puts His Spirit in us. That very Spirit of sanctification, the Holy Spirit, So now you know about His work. You see, even though the focus of the Heidelberg Catechism is upon the cross, and even though the focus of the Catechism is clearly on satisfaction, the Catechism is also looking ahead. Catechism is recognizing that our deliverance is far, far more broad than merely satisfaction. I say merely in the sense that it's limited to that. No, no. That satisfaction opens up a full and complete deliverance that changes us, that affects us radically and amazingly. It isn't just that we are acting a certain way, but that we know God in love through faith. That we are actually righteous before God and Live holy lives unto Him. Now, lastly, we consider the personal revelation of that, and here is what I want to point out. Notice we know this from the Holy Gospel. And that Holy Gospel is found in the Word of God. It says that Holy Gospel was revealed already in paradise. That's Genesis 3, 15. You all know it by heart. The mother promise. So notice already the Holy Gospel is identified with the promise. That is, the covenant promise. Wherein God reveals all this is in His promise, even His covenant promise, to be our God and that we will be His people through this Mediator and Deliverer that He will give. That's the Gospel. And the Gospel is that which points Him out. It says this is who He will be. This is what he must do. This is what he must look like. But just notice that. That God first revealed it. Then he published it. God published it. 
He declared it publicly even before the heathen. He did that through patriarchs like Abraham. Did it through prophets like Daniel. And he represented it. He gave pictures of that gospel. In the sacrifices and in the ceremonies of the law, there it all was. It all pointed. And all of it pointed to exactly what we've been preaching, the gospel. That there's only one deliverer, one mediator. To be a deliverer, he must be a mediator. Mediator who delivers. He must be God. He must be man. He must come down. He must therefore be humble. He must be perfectly righteous. Why? Why? So that you put your faith in Him. That's why. And so that you don't put your faith in anything else. Not one thing. That's why. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, increase our faith and help Thou our unbelief. Cause us to grow in our knowledge of and our trust in Jesus Christ as our only Savior, our only Deliverer, our only Mediator, the One who is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And may we give ourselves to Him in holy thanksgiving all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.